Back in 2015, Ada Sakwe was working a high-profile, good-paying job as the senior investment advisor to Nigeria's Minister of Agriculture. But she wasn't really happy, and what she wanted to do was start her own business. So that year, she took one of the biggest gambles of her life to launch a fresh, locally-grown juice startup called Nuli. The name comes from the Nigerian word Anwuli, which means happiness. She had just launched her first store and was making a splash in Lagos. But two weeks later, her startup was turned upside down. I get a call from one of my teammates and he says, Ma, you know, there, there are men here and they want to demolish the store. And they have bulldozers and you need to get over. And I ran over in my, honestly, literally, I was still in my pajamas. Uh, and, I, and I got in my car and I drove over and they had blocked off the streets and they said, the landlord that we got the place from was not approved to be there. How Ada dealt with this moment and many others shows a lot about what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur, including the obstacles that she had to overcome. That story and more just ahead. This is the Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a series from Foreign Policy, where we explore the biggest barriers blocking female entrepreneurs around the world. I'm Rina Ninen. Today, we're going to dive deeper into the part of the economy commonly referred to as the, quote, missing middle. These are small and medium-sized business owners. They're too big for the kind of microfinance loans we discussed in the last episode, yet too small for good commercial bank loans. Ada Sakwe's juice startup is a prime example of the problem of being in this financial dead zone. According to the World Bank, Nigeria ranks in the bottom third of the countries in terms of the ease of doing business score. This takes into account things like how easy it is to get a loan, register a property, get electricity, pay taxes, and enforce contracts. All of this red tape can make it harder for a startup to succeed. And if there's anyone you'd bet on succeeding, it would be Ada. Her resume boasts of an MBA from Northwestern University, time working both in private equity and the highly influential African Development Bank. Additionally, she founded her own angel investment firm called Agrilay Ventures, which supports early-stage companies in Africa. But despite this vast knowledge of banking and finance, her dream of providing healthy, locally-sourced juices to customers nearly never made it. She believed in her new business, but the question still remained, could she overcome all the obstacles to get it off the ground? I remember, you know, leaving that high-profile job in government, having access to influential people, presidents, ministers, you know, all over Africa and beyond, and then suddenly leaving that and going to start a company. I remember people saying that when they would ask, what's Ada doing now? And they'll say, oh, she's doing juice. And they'll look puzzled. They'll say, she's doing juice. And, and for me, I thought that was just, just brilliant because it was the start. They just didn't know the hidden gem in, in what we were building. We, the fact that we had over 60% post-harvest losses in our agriculture sector, in the fresh produce sector specifically, we had, were the largest producer of pineapples in, in Africa, we're the largest producer of tomatoes, we're the largest producer of citrus fruits, and we were importing from Europe to put into the juice products that the manufacturers sold to consumers. I just didn't get it. So for me, it was just a space I was like, this is a low-hanging fruit. At the time, I was very passionate about nutrition. 
And, and I was like, why don't we use what we grow locally from our farmers, these fruits and vegetables, make them into a juice product that's nicely packaged and sell it to consumers, specifically in urban areas so that they could have better lifestyles, healthier lifestyles, but we were now using what we grew locally. So that for me was the big driver for going into the juice category first. So how did you get the company started? I leveraged on family and friends. You know, this was my savings that I put into buying equipment, buying the juice makers. I remember asking my mom and sister if I could stay in the building they had their office. Could I use this little kitchen space and start? So I did it up and it was literally maybe only (laughs) 20 square meters or so or smaller. And that's where we started. It was a real hustle, but it had to be done. And I think about how I actually didn't get any support from a bank or from the government. There were no loans available. There are not many loans available for SMEs in any case in Nigeria. So it's really difficult, but we pulled through it all. We just had to. They say our entrepreneurs are resilient. I say those in Africa are even more resilient. I can see why. Absolutely. Ada, you know, you mentioned that you did not take out a bank loan. So... Why didn't you take out a loan and how were you able to raise money for Newly Juice? Uh, There are a few things, um, a few reasons. First of all, I did not take a loan when I started Newly because they're too expensive. You know, you only have commercial banks giving double digit interest rate loans. Total, you could be paying 30% a year in interest. And then you have to get all sorts of funny things for collateral to back your application for them to give you the loan. They ask for house, your ownership of a house, or they ask for personal director guarantees. So many things that just don't make sense for someone starting up. Limited revenue, but you just need the capital, the working capital especially, to get going, to buy inventory, to take care of salaries in the first few months. The financial services environment was not good for that and still isn't, I should say. Um, So that's one of the big reasons why I didn't take a loan. And thank goodness I had some savings and and I poured this in in the first year and a half until it ran out. (laughs) Wow. You actually, in late August 2016, about a year and a half, as you mentioned, after you began this whole newly journey, you finally opened your very first store. There was so much buzz. Things were going so well. But then... Around two weeks after Newly Juice was open for business, your store was demolished. What happened? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I get goosebumps when I think about that moment. And the next morning, I get a call from one of my teammates. And he says, you know, he says, Ma, they call me Madame, you know, Ma, you know, there, there are men here and they want to demolish the store. And they have bulldozers and you need to get over. And I ran over in my Honestly, literally, I was still in my pajamas uh, and I and I got in my car and I drove over and they had blocked off the streets and they said the landlord that we got the place from was not approved to be there. We'd had, we had paid the rent in full for, for an, a year um, in advance because that's the way the system is. You have to pay rent in advance. I tried everything. I called those people that I had met in government, all those amazing, powerful people that were on my contact list I started making calls no one could help me they some people said oh we're calling the governor because by the way they said these men said they were from the government but nothing could stop that bulldozer coming down about 30 minutes later 
I still remember saying to the man who was supervising the demolition and I said, even squatters have rights, at least let us move our things. And it was just didn't make sense. My team was, they were crying. We were yanking out furniture and trying to see what we could take until they brought it down. And they brought it down with four other retail businesses in this, on the strip and all of them were female owned. That was a major setback. Um, I think about, you know, if I didn't have the resilience we mentioned, but, but more importantly, Rina, I think it was being able to see the power of humanity at work when that happened. People rallied out for us. Newspapers, journalists carried the story. People put it on their social media. It went viral. People wanted money from the landlord. He did not label. And they come here and they destroyed the property. It's yes. people now. People set up a website to raise funding for, for us to stay in business and pay salaries. I remember Uber changed all their cars. You know, when you, you're trying to call an Uber, they changed all the colors of their cars to orange, which is our brand color. And they were helping with deliveries because we had started the next day we were making the toasting the, the wraps from my kitchen. So I think that's what got me up the next morning. The next morning was my birthday and I was just in bed. I was crying. I didn't want to get up. But I think just seeing how people rallied around us, I think that was powerful. And, and that for me was a realization that as entrepreneurs, we're not alone. And whatever we're doing, whatever we're building, people are taking notice and they see the impact. You know, a lot of people would have crumbled. It's devastating. And I'm just confused at the story. Why would they demolish your store and other stores like that? And is this common in Nigeria? It's a great question because, in fact, there was some history of, of the state government doing those demolitions. But typically in places that we live in the city, I'm middle class, so I may not hear about it or you would see it in the news that a whole settlement of where people live was demolished and they try, you hear of either them resettling the people or they don't. Um, but it hadn't happened to, I guess, someone with my network, um, someone with, you know, I, I'm quite outspoken when it comes to the issues of injustice. Um, and, and I try to use my platform for change. And I think for that reason, in many ways, we've not heard of these sorts of demolitions on such a large scale. It was a scar on the record of that administration, and people would always remember. Mm, what a story. I mean, your journey is just so incredible to me. What did you realize when you went through this horrific incident that would make anybody else crumble and just stop moving forward? What did you realize about the role of government and small business? Oh my, um, that was the turning point for me, um, Rina, in realizing the power the government has and the, in fact, the role and the responsibility government has for small businesses in, in, the, in any country, in any economy. When I became an entrepreneur after leaving the government, I remember because of I spent four years in such a bureaucratic system, which is the government, the civil service, I remember saying that now I'm an entrepreneur, I'm going into the private sector. I don't need government. I'm going to build and set my path. But that moment when my store was demolished, my first store in Lagos, as a business owner, as a private business owner, 
that moment changed it all for me. I was like, my, my gosh, the government is the power here. The government needs to understand and be empathetic for what business owners are going through, specifically small business owners. And I'll just tell you how that, that experience impacted the way I spoke up even later on. When COVID struck in 2020, in March, other governments were figuring out ways to support individuals, business owners, at a time when they tell you to sit at home. Our government told us to sit at home, and yet they did nothing for small business owners. There were no loans, there was no furlough, there was just nothing. And I used this, my platform again, I went on my social media, and that led to speaking on, on various platforms locally and internationally about what the government needed to do for small and medium enterprises. So I'm glad it happened in, from the standpoint of that recognition that the government does have a role to play and they are responsible and we should not let them off the hook when it comes to supporting small and medium enterprises that are, that are growing, that are the engine of growth that employ over 90% of the labor force of the country, they can't ignore us and they need to be supportive. What did you do after the demolition, not only to rebuild, but to expand Newly Juice? We ended up getting, you know, the landlord ended up giving us another store. We started with no limited money because all the money had pretty much gone into to the other store that was demolished. We just said, let's just start. And, and it wasn't as pretty, wasn't fully done up, but we just said, let's get, let's just do it. And, and with time, I ended up then beginning a, an investment round to, to get investors into the business, to sell the story. And that was successful, though it took a long time. We ended up scaling out the business and from that one store going to two, going to six and ending up at, at 10, 10 stores at some point in 2019. Today, we're at seven stores um, after rationalizing, after COVID. And it's just really nice to see the growth. And I look back at that time and I'm like, yeah, the government has nothing on me. We, we keep going. <laughs> and on selfish reasons, I really am hoping there's global expansion of Newly because I would love to try one of those juices in New York. <laughs> Yes, we're coming, we're coming. <laughs> Congratulations, Adam. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Rina. This is a fantastic conversation. Thank you for inspiring me and so many other women. That was Otto Sakwe, founder of the Newly Juice Company and the angel investment firm Agrilay Ventures. After those difficult beginnings, Newly has hit its stride. It's now the fastest growing farm to table beverage producer and fastest casual restaurant chain in Nigeria. In recognition of this feat, Ada was named Africa Businesswoman of the Year 2021 by Forbes magazine. Ada's story is remarkable not only because of her success, but because she did it without institutional financial support. Remember, she didn't even take out a loan because the interest rates were so high for small and medium-sized businesses, even for someone like her. Ada had enough connections and experience that she could raise money on her own, but most women are not in that kind of position. So many want to start a business, but they look at those high interest rates for loans for medium and small-sized businesses, 
and they think this just feels too risky for me. And if you look at this on the macro level, having entrepreneurs give up on their dream can be cataclysmic for a country's economy. The World Bank estimates that 90% of businesses worldwide are actually considered small and medium-sized. So in other words, these people are actually the backbone of the global economy. So what can countries like Nigeria do to be more welcoming for entrepreneurs like Ada? We'll speak to renowned World Bank financial inclusion expert Mahesh Uttamchandani about that very question after the break. Let's face it, money is the one subject we all need to deal with, but no one actually wants to talk about. The good news is there's a podcast helping you learn everything about money no one taught you. Meet Everyone's Talking Money, hosted by me, Shauna Game. Everyone's Talking Money focuses on relevant, inclusive, and forward-thinking conversations around money and just helps you get in a better relationship with your money, no matter what your goals are. Do yourself a favor and subscribe to Everyone's Talking Money podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a production of Foreign Policy. I'm Rena Nainan. All today, we've been discussing the missing middle credit gap for small and medium-sized business owners. Basically, that it's hard to get a low-interest loan if you're not a large business. Women business owners, of course, face their own unique challenges. This is because they often share a disproportionate burden of childcare, housekeeping, and other forms of unpaid work. So their businesses are more susceptible to unexpected shocks. For example, during the COVID-19 pandemic, a study by the World Bank found that women-led businesses have generally seen larger declines in sales and profit compared to their male counterparts. So how can we change the system to help ease the burden on female entrepreneurs? And what can be done in general to cut red tape and ensure that those who wish to start a new small or medium-sized business have the necessary support to keep things going, even through rough patches? Here now to help us answer these questions is Mahesh Uttamchandani from the World Bank. His formal title is Financial Inclusion Manager. So basically, he's someone who tries to figure out how to make marketplaces more accessible. A lot of this starts with getting lenders to reassess their calculation when it comes to risk. This is something he learned from his previous career practicing law. Lenders are in the business of pricing risk. In an earlier life, I was a bankruptcy lawyer, and one of the things I saw many, many times was that small businesses just presented in the minds of lenders too big a risk. And so they charge a very large risk premium and that effectively locks the business out of finance. There's something called the missing middle where it's far harder for SMEs, small and medium-sized businesses to get any sort of financing. The big businesses, they'll get their loans. It might even be easier for those on the lower end of the income spectrum because they've got these smaller micro finance loans. Can you walk me through what is the missing middle? Well, I think I think you described it perfectly well, which is that microfinance still serves a lot of people at the base of the pyramid or what we call the base of the pyramid, which is the very poor. And microfinance sometimes has acquired a negative reputation, but it still serves a lot of very poor people. And then of course there are a handful of businesses at the top end of the spectrum that are being chased by all the potential lenders, whether it's traditional banks or even private equity that are accessing finance, you know, fairly easily. But it's this middle, which is sometimes very large in countries that are too large for microfinance to be useful and too small to have the kinds of financial reporting or even the kinds of risk profiles 
that make them appealing to large lenders. There's a fascinating pilot in Ethiopia where you use something called psychometric testing. What is psychometric testing? How did it help in Ethiopia? Psychometric testing is just a fancy way of saying we worked with a fintech who constructed a survey that looked at behavioral patterns that tend to lead to someone repaying their loan on time. And in traditional lending, you would look at what I call the breadcrumbs of someone's financial history. So you would look at their bill payments, their credit card payments maybe, and to see if they had a propensity to repay their debts. And that's what traditional scoring really is. It's not that much more complicated than that. But again, for a lot of women and a lot of a lot of low-income households in general, you don't have these breadcrumbs. So the psychometric test was a way of almost creating a synthetic version of these breadcrumbs by creating questions that tried to measure the same things. And in practice, those tests proved to be as predictive or even more predictive on the propensity to repay. So one of the interesting things about Ethiopia was that if we looked at credit bureau data, which is how you or I might get our credit score, it was only 30% of the population that had this kind of data uh, or these breadcrumbs. And if, even if you looked at mobile phone data, it was only about 75% of the population. But the psychometric test, because it can be delivered on a tablet to literally anyone, you can reach 100% of your prospective borrowers with that tool. And what we found was that when we implemented these tests, the number of female borrowers in this pilot went up dramatically. And we were able to reach women who otherwise would have been left behind by the financial system. And not only are you reaching women who have been left behind, what was fascinating to me, those who scored higher on the test were actually seven times more likely to repay their loans. What does that mean? Well, I think it validates something that we've known intuitively for a long time, which is the poor repay their debts. And I think we also know that the power of community in kind of encouraging people to repay their debts is hugely powerful. And women repay their debts. You know, to get a bigger loan in many places, like in the global south, you need collateral, basic proof that, hey, you can pay back this loan, which means that you have a certain amount of assets, like property. But women own land way less than men, which is really a bigger barrier to getting these larger loans. So in the past 10 years, there's something called movable collateral, which can dramatically increase women's access to financing. Can you explain a little bit more about movable collateral and examples in different countries? Sure. So because, as you rightly said, women are less likely to be the ones owning real estate in their families and their households, they need other means of securing a loan and giving their lender comfort that the lender will have access to an asset if the, the loan goes unpaid. And this goes a long way, not only to securing the loan, but lowering the cost of credit because the lender gets comfortable that he or she has an asset they can go after. And so creating a legal framework, a basic legal framework that even allows this type of collateral, whether it's inventory or accounts receivable or furniture uh, or even intellectual property to be used as collateral is the first step. But the legal framework's not enough. Once you have that, you need something called a movable collateral registry, which is basically a searchable database that allows any lender sitting at their desk in their office to search, you know, and it could be by a, a unique ID identifier, like a social security number or something similar to that, to search who their borrower is and whether their borrower has given 
this kind of collateral to any other lender. And the reason that's important is because real estate can't move. That's why we call it immovable collateral. But movable assets can be taken anywhere. And so lenders want extra security to know that it hasn't been given to somebody else. So they can search a collateral registry to see that it hasn't been given to someone else, and then they can lend money against these assets. And that has proven to be something that really increases women's access to finance. We have engaged in these kinds of projects in China, for example, many years ago, where accounts receivable previously couldn't be used as collateral. And it was amazing to watch once you opened up this pipeline, how many tens of millions of dollars of loans started to move through these platforms to both male and female-owned businesses using movable collateral. We've seen similar things happen in Tanzania. We've seen it happen in Ghana. There are just great examples all over the world of countries creating this basic legal framework, implementing the electronic registry, and then watching the market take off. You know, you're also thinking a lot about ways to improve some basic things like really increasing women's financial security, like payments, how to digitalize them. Can you sort of talk to me a little bit about that and why that's so important? Sure. I I think if we look at overall women's economic inclusion, uh, whether it's women as individuals or as business owners, there are a couple of areas we know to be key. One is digital connectivity, women having less access to not only mobile phones, but the internet generally. But we also look at a supportive regulatory framework where you can do things like onboarding women customers who may be less likely to have formal types of ID uh, into the financial system in a really efficient way. One of the ways of doing that is to create so-called limited use accounts or simplified accounts that don't have all the complexities maybe of a a full-service bank account and therefore maybe onboarding women with uh, less ID or with smaller credit histories is easier to do because you don't have to give them access to the full suite of services. You can have basic accounts. So I think investing in all of these aspects is going to close the gap for women in their access to financial services. Mahesh, you're also really passionate about lowering the cost of remittances. Why do you think this could be such a game changer? When you look at the size of remittances, it's incredible. There are about $600 billion that flow every year across borders in remittances most of this flowing to emerging markets and developing economies. Now, to put that number into context, it is larger than all of the international development aid and all of the foreign direct investment put together. Now, the cost of moving that money is on average about six and a half cents on the dollar. So that's six and a half cents out of every dollar that comes out of the hands of the recipient, typically, as I said, someone in a poor country, that if we could lower that cost, would really be significant. And six and a half cents may not sound like a a huge amount of money, but in some what we call corridors, where you're moving money from country A to country B, that cost can be as high as 14 or 15%. But what we've learned is when you use technology, particularly mobile phone technology, on both sides of that transaction, you can reduce that cost to about three cents. And so the provider is still able to make money from the transaction. And that profit incentive is important, I think, to have the private sector active in this space. But you're just putting more money in the hands of the poor against this huge denominator of $600 billion. Fascinating how this digital revolution can help people around the world, no matter how small or how big your business is. 
Mahesh, I want to thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. That was Mahesh Uttamchandani, a financial inclusion expert from the World Bank. Mahesh mentioned a number of ways to increase everyone's ability to become entrepreneurs and really just more empowered financially. Alternatively, ways to come up with credit scores, digitized payments, lower the cost of remittances. Mahesh also says that better gender data is one of the ways to improve resources for women around the world. There's this old cliche that what gets measured gets done. And I think one of the first steps is for countries to collect gender disaggregated data so that they know who is and who is not getting access to finance. Having that gender disaggregated data will let them know where the problems are. And that's the first step in designing policy solutions that can respond to women's needs. On the next episode, one nonprofit's ability to collect better gender data helped propel a movement to ban child marriage in Indonesia, a movement that got them to advocate directly to the president. We were actually picked up at the door by the president himself. I conveyed the importance of protecting women by uh, increasing the marriage age from 16 to 19 years old. More on how to end child marriage next week. And that does it for today's show. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is a production of Foreign Policy. It's supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. If you like what you're hearing, we hope you'll subscribe and tell your friends about the show. It really helps us spread the word about what we're doing. The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women is hosted by me, Rena Ninen. Laura Rossbrow-Tellum is our senior producer. Rob Sachs, our managing editor. Foreign Policy's audio team includes Dan Efron, Rosie Julin, and Zamone Perez. Special thanks this week to Jessica Schnabel from IFC, who recommended we talk to Ada Osakwe. And again, to Mary Ellen Iskandarian from Women's World Banking. She planted this seed in our heads about movable collateral. Our thanks. We'll be back in your feed next week.